0: listening to West of Middle East, a podcast about Middle Eastern changemakers living in the West. I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. In season two, we feature changemakers working in and around the field of education. Be it through traditional academia, technology, the arts, advocacy, or movement building. Each episode shines a spotlight on changemakers doing everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary, humanizing their triumphs and struggles and offering a more real narrative of who they are to counter the often sensationalized and misconceived portrayals of these communities in mainstream media. West of Middle East is produced by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Achieving true diversity is something with which most fields of study or professions still struggle. It's no different in theater, for actors, for playwrights, and for directors. It was only in 2016 that Laisle Tommy became the first woman director of color to ever receive a Tony nomination for her work on the off-Broadway play Eclipse. And although women of color are making considerable progress in the theater world, numbers for 2016 and 2017 show that only six of the approximate 30 Broadway productions were directed by women of color even though women make up more than half of the theater-going audience. Today, I sit down with Iranian-American theater director and educator Piron Youssefzadeh to learn about her experience and the ways in which she is challenging the notions of hegemony, sexism, and racism in the theater world. Piron's passion for the arts, education, and theater is directly related to her identity as an Iranian growing up in America.
1: My original inspiration in theater stemmed honestly from a desire for a feeling of belonging Uh, when I was a kid. I always felt a little bit of a split between my Iranian heritage and the fact that I was growing up in America and I knew that I had a different name and I looked a little different than a lot of the people I was in school with, but I listened to the same music as them and I watched the same movies as them and I felt very much that split within me. And honestly, I started doing theater in middle and high school to hang out with my friends after school. And I think that it originally felt like an opportunity for assimilation, an opportunity to feel like an American, even though obviously the work that I do now has so much more to do with that feeling of that split identity as opposed to an attempt at a cohesion or a wholeness that I've never felt. And so my inspiration and my mission within the theater has changed greatly since that original moment as a child where the bug bit and I got very excited about this idea of community that I had found. And now it's just a very different, my core values, my ideals, the things that I'm pursuing in my work have much more to do with actually excavating that feeling as opposed to trying to sort of smooth it over.
0: Her experience
1: growing in this field informs how she views her role as a theater teacher. The evolution of my sense of mission in theater, I think, has coincided with a lot of evolution in our society in the kind of conversations we've been having. And while originally I sought it out as a place to assimilate and belong, and I think that that still pervaded some of my impulses in college even, over time I started to become aware of things as simple as being the only person of color in a cast, noticing when that was the case, And then particularly when I started meeting other Middle Eastern artists and started reading plays where the featured character, like, wasn't just someone who could be played by a person of color and it, like, wouldn't be a problem, you know, but, like, actually had to be. And when I started to get more and more familiar with that work and started working with those writers and realizing that there was a true necessity for more of that work— And that it is still proportionately greatly underrepresented in the American theater. Those opportunities and that sort of feedback that I was getting from those experiences in terms of what that was actually making me feel and how that was galvanizing me and motivating me made me continually rephrase and reevaluate why I was doing what I was doing. And I also think that teaching has been a big part of that because— For young women of color, especially, I think it's very important that they see themselves in their faculty and they see themselves on their syllabus and they aren't just reading the canonical greats that are great, but of one kind of canon, which is a lot of what my theater education was. And so now looking back and looking forward, I find myself... Thinking about 18-year-old me and looking at these amazing students that I have and realizing that it is my responsibility to show them that there is a place in the theater for them that isn't going to be about them having to blend in or assimilate or shed something of their cultural identity, but to embrace it and know that there is a place for that just as there is for anything else.
0: Like many other Iranian youth who choose an uncommon career, it took Piron's family a little time to understand her chosen path.
1: My family's relationship to my life in the theater has been a journey. I think for them it was very much about wanting me to live a life of stability. And I think a lot of their disapproval originally and negativity really just stemmed from fear and worry. My father is a retired pediatric radiologist. He worked at the University of Chicago Hospitals from when I was three until he retired. And he, you know, had the same office for all those years and had a salary. And for him, the idea, for both of my parents, I think the idea of bouncing around and doing a show in Cleveland and then going to Rochester and then coming back home to New York, it's just very strange. And so... Now, looking back, I can see how much the life path I chose is simply foreign to my parents. At the time, it was very difficult because I also did show some promise in other academics and I had enjoyed the biological sciences and so my father was really rooting for me to go into medicine. Neither of my older siblings did and so I was the last hope and there was just a lot riding on that and it's very sweet. He voiced even this fantasy he had had that I would become a physician and then I would get a job at the University of Chicago and then there we would be father and daughter alongside each other, practicing medicine, having lunch at the cafeteria together. He'd really mapped this whole thing out. So he had to sort of part with an imagined future that was not going to come to be. And as I think they've seen that I've found my way in a difficult career path and that the unpredictability of it is the norm, they've come around to support it more. I still think they want me to find a tenured track job, but I think that they've just gone on this like very long journey of learning about what this is and that I was always going to be an artist.
0: And she's had some amazing mentors who helped her with her decision.
1: There were so many incredible mentors along the way and mostly women and I'm very grateful that they're all still in my life. I had really great teachers in college. I went to Washington University in St. Louis because I was going to be pre-med, and <laughs> thankfully they also had this really great drama department, and I started auditioning, and I was acting in plays and assistant directing for my teachers, and one I remember in particular, this incredible acting teacher, Anna Maria Peleggi. She was the first person to clock that I had a director's eye and to really encourage me to pursue that. And then once I took that shift, there was another teacher at WashU named Andrea Urice, who was an incredible director and still is. And she really took me under her wing and It was a small enough program that I was able to get a lot of really great one-on-one attention from her and from all of my teachers just because there weren't that many people in my class who were interested in directing. Most people were interested in acting. And so there were these great role models of just strong, powerful women They were funny and opinionated and unapologetically themselves, and they knew how to lead a room. They knew how to galvanize and inspire people, and being in their presence was always just the most amazing thing. They just radiated this incredible energy, and they both communicated to me that I could do this and that this was where my theatrical gifts really were. And then I assisted a lot of directors in my early 20s out of college. And when I went to graduate school, my main mentor at Columbia was Ann Bogart, who is, in my estimation, the greatest directing teacher in any graduate program. And what she teaches is both technique and craft and all of those skill sets that a director has to have. But what she really opened my eyes to was finding Both my sense of mission in my work, but also the notion that in being a director, just because I wasn't on stage, that didn't mean that I didn't need to put myself into my work. And that actually directing is just as personal as acting and just as vulnerable as acting in a very, very different way. And I think I thought that I could hide a little as a director and I could... I didn't have to be seen. I didn't have to put myself on stage, but I could just be in the corner and say smart things and then kind of disappear. And she made me realize how much a director has to put themselves on the line in order for actors to do that, in order to make something truly meaningful and memorable to an audience. And so it was the combination of all of these mentors along the way that really... I can't attribute where I am as an artist or who I am as an artist to any single person, but I feel very grateful that I have this incredible like team of mentors, most of whom are just incredible women and are all amazing artists, but also equally amazing teachers.
0: Ask Piron to talk more about being a woman of color, navigating
1: a male-dominated industry. There have been a lot of lessons along the way in navigating a field that is predominantly male and white. I struggled a lot with the idea of, like, playing my brownness or using that card early on. I just wanted to be hired because I was good. And I thought that that would be the reason someone would give me a job was because I was a good director. And I resisted a lot of the other strategies I could use or the way I could pivot from my cultural identity and use that somehow. And I I still think that if it feels that strategic or manipulative without really coming from a place of true artistic passion and inspiration, then that's exactly what it is. It's just playing chess and it's not something I'm interested in and it's not a place from which I want to make art. But I, I think that part of that sort of very heightened desire for assimilation for me also had to do with not wanting to be valued for my cultural identity And I still don't want to be valued for only that, but I don't want it to be erased or forgotten either. And I have, I think, over time realized and learned that there is a way that I can embrace it without it having to be the beginning and end of who I am as an artist, but that it is part of me. And it felt very much like an all-or-nothing proposition to me early on in my career and I saw and heard from people who would give me advice that was basically about leaning into my Middle Easternness, my Iranian-ness, my brownness, whatever. And I resisted it. And I think it's been important to find in navigating this terrain a way of embracing that part of me and letting that be part of who I am as an artist— in an industry where more and more I think people are realizing we do need to be hearing from those artists and we do need to be making space for those people. But I also think that the other side of this, the other lesson I feel like I've learned has been about finding a way to take frustration and anger and put it into action. It is very easy to look at season announcements and see how many of those directors are white and or male, And to just get mad. And it could turn into bitterness. It could turn into resentment easily. But I have tried very hard to clock what I see that is frustrating or a sign of work we still need to do and to look at it as that work we still need to do and to let that be motivating for me as opposed to something that could wear me down.
0: And for most women of color, continuing to challenge and overcome discrimination is a given.
1: Women of color are doing, I think, what they've always done, which is organizing. And I think we're seeing that also on a larger political level. It's not surprising to me that the person who began the Me Too movement was originally a woman of color. It's also not surprising to me that it has gained visibility and traction largely because of white Hollywood actors. And I see there are so many people in the industry who've been in it for longer than me who were paving the way before I showed up even to New York, who have started companies and have just started forging more collaborations and more relationships in order for us to join forces and find strength in numbers and support one another. I don't know that anything has happened on the sexual harassment end in the way that it has in film perhaps because there just isn't that much money in the theater. But I know that it is a problem. I've experienced it many times over the course of my career. And I do see that in some cases, there are artistic leaders who are having to face the music and either change their ways or step down. And I think it's time. It is most certainly time for that to change in the meantime, I think a lot of women of color are just doing what they've always done, which is keeping their head down and doing the work, you know? And I crave more of that sense of solidarity and support amongst women of color directors, especially, because I think that the there's a scarcity narrative that we're all still subscribing to, that there isn't quite enough work for all of us, and we all have to kind of fight it out and compete with each other. and That is a model that keeps us powerless and working against one another instead of with each other. And I hope that alongside this Me Too movement, we can also start to shed this notion that there isn't room for all of us when there is. And we just need to make room Mm -hmm. and and claim that space. I think we're on our way. I think that the events of the last few months and the way the conversation has shifted over the last few months— is paving the way, creating some space for perhaps a different way of female artists to interact with each other, not just with the male leaders of the industry. first challenge that comes to my mind about navigating this white male-dominated industry has been my own deferential nature and learning to hold space and walk into a room in a different way. I grew up in a household and in a culture that is very much about respecting your elders where, you know, the men would get together and talk about politics and the women would get together and talk about their children and where there wasn't much space for a woman who wanted to, for instance, have a family and have a career. I didn't see a lot of models for that. And I have, I think, inherited a sense of deference towards my elders. And artistic directors are generally male and older. And so I realized how much I was imprinting a lot of my family dynamics onto those collaborative relationships and that I needed to, if I wanted to be trusted and respected and valued, that I had to treat those people not as my elders, but as my equals. And that required me to work on my self-confidence and sometimes fake it, you know, sometimes walk into a room and just take a posture, a physical posture, or put on a blazer or whatever it took for me to feel powerful uh, in order to combat the inner sense that I was a child (laughs) and a girl and someone who wasn't going to be invited to the table for those conversations. I think that there's a way in which we bring all of our childhood wounds and our family dynamics and our culture to bear on our work And I've thought a lot about how the way I operate in a rehearsal room or in a meeting can find its roots in who I was as the baby of my family of five. And so I've tried to do a lot of work on myself in exploring that and understanding that. And a lot of that has had to do with learning that if I wanted to be trusted and valued as a woman in this field— that that meant that I had to walk into the room differently than I had been. And I think that's just a lot of inherited, systemic, patriarchal nonsense that I internalized, where I would let myself be interrupted or wouldn't put my hand up even though I knew the answer. And all of those other micro moments that add up and create a sense of self. And I think that the most important thing that a young female director can do Is not walk into the room with that sort of leading with their how young and female and inexperienced they are. I think people will treat you that way, and you have to actually walk into the room with a sense of your own power and a sense of your own potential and the gifts that you have to offer.
0: Theron also highlights the important educational role that theater plays in our society today.
1: Theater is probably the most essential component, obviously I feel that way, that a young student can receive that isn't about as valuable as I think academics are and as much as I very much enjoyed and dug into my academic studies I've taught theater for students anywhere from sixth grade to graduate school. And obviously, there's a different kind of curriculum and a different kind of practice involved with undergraduates or graduate students who are majoring in theater or getting their MFA, and they know that this is something they're very likely going to do for the rest of their life. But even for those undergraduates who are taking an acting class because they have to, or because they think it just might be kind of fun, or the high school students who have to take theater as one of their arts electives, I think what the theater teaches that is the most valuable and what we need more of, and particularly the climate in which we are currently living, is empathy and teamwork. And I have particularly been gratified by the moments where I've seen a student have the realization that in putting themselves in this character's shoes or in imagining how a character could feel this way or do or not do that thing, that it's given them a different kind of insight about how they look at their classmates and how they themselves are seen. And that is so so important, especially when I think about how difficult adolescence can be and how toxic high school can be, especially when I think about, you know, folks who do feel a little bit like outsiders, which I think is everyone. I think everyone feels like an outsider when they're in in that time of life. But also, you know, and the thing that I always say to my undergraduate students at the end of the semester is, I don't know if you're going to pursue theater If you love it, you should. If you love something else, you should do that. But you're going to be hard-pressed to find a career path where you're not going to have to work alongside other people. And even if you decide to be a novelist, you're going to have your editor and your publisher and your agent. And if you become a doctor, you're going to be working with the radiologist and the anesthesiologist and the nurses and the residents. And so you're always going to have collaborators. And so what we're really working on is the language of collaboration. And that is always going to apply. Learning how to receive feedback and give constructive feedback and deal with a disagreement or a miscommunication of vision or expectations, that will come up again and again and again. And so that's what I think I'm training them for, not just the next great actor and the next great director. Although if that happens too, great. But if not, there will be ways for them to take those skills into other things. I think theater is particularly unique as an educational experience for an audience because of the way in which an audience member can learn about a person or a community or a historical event or any number of things in an experience that is built to engage their empathy. And I think there's a very big difference between learning about something on the news or in print in a way that I think often gets boiled down to a narrative of good guys and bad guys. And the most exciting theater to me is in the murkier waters in between those binaries where you might have empathy for someone you're very surprised to have empathy for, or where you find yourself interrogating the actions of who you actually thought was the protagonist or the hero of the play. And I think that that murky area is where most of us live. We're complicated and we're flawed. And my idea of what a good person is has changed a lot because of my work in the theater. And I don't think it is as absolute as there are good people and there are bad people. And so that complexity, I think, allows for a kind of engagement for an audience with an issue or with a community that might offer them an insight or an understanding that goes beyond the reductive narratives that particularly I find in a lot of the more sort of dangerous forces in the media. And by dangerous forces in the media, I mean Fox News and Breitbart and Infowars. And I'm sure we have our liberal equivalents, but actually don't I think that's a false equivalency. I don't think they're quite the same. And so I think it's really important that we consider our role in the theater as one of education and not in a way to preach to an audience or to condescend to them, but for us to all together participate in a discourse about who we are as a people and a society and a country and how we can do better and I think that the immediacy of a live actor in front of you just changes that. As much as I think that there are so many incredible films, I think being made right now, and I think we're living in a pretty amazing age for cinema. But that will never have the experience of the live actor sweating in front of you. And I think that that just keys into something primal in all of us about community and about holding a space with other people and. And telling a story around a campfire and all of those iterations of theater that have existed in hundreds and hundreds of years of human evolution. So we have a unique opportunity to deal with those more complicated and sort of gnarlier issues, I think, because of the way in which watching an actor on stage sparks something in an audience member and can open up their heart in a way to receive a kind of information that they might have otherwise turned the other cheek to.
0: As an artist and a director, Pirone finds herself drawn to several types of stories and genres.
1: I think it's possible to teach certain elements of craft and technique to a young director, but I think that ultimately my job as a teacher to young directors is to help them find out who they are. I was a technique junkie, I think, as a student. I thought that that was really all I needed to be, was just really skilled. And I think I hid behind that before I went to graduate school and thought, you know, I'd assisted all of these different directors and I'd learned a lot about how they did table work in the first couple rehearsals and how they would stage the actors and how they would craft a particularly emotionally difficult or or climactic moment of the play. But all of that is all well and good, but it's not worth a whole lot if you don't know who you are and you don't know what you need to say that requires an audience member to buy a ticket and leave the comfort of their home and spend two hours in this space with a group of strangers to see the thing that you've put together. And so for me... Working with students as much as I want to lend them as much information as I can about the technique of landing a joke or generating a gestural vocabulary for a movement sequence or any number of other things that I can impart. The core value is always the gauntlet to them of what do you have to say and why? Why this play? Why now? And how are you going to put the answers to those questions into the production and into every choice that you make with actors and designers? Because if you don't feel that sense of immediacy or necessity, then your audience won't either. (laughs) And it sounds really sort of harsh to say this, but I don't think we need more mediocre theater. (laughs) I think we need theater that really interrogates the moment we are in and goes back to the roots of theater in ancient Greece as the home of democracy and to really live in that very urgent (laughs) space. And
0: she sees a role for more provocative, controversial types of projects, which may make some people uncomfortable.
1: What has remained the case for me over the course of my career is that I like a lot of different kinds of work and I like to keep a rather varied experience for myself from show to show it keeps me on my toes in a way that I enjoy whereas I think if I was making the same kind of work or making work in one particular way all of the time I would maybe start to lose some of that sharpness so it's very motivating for me and exciting for me to be able to change it up but then at the same time the plays that I really love and that I find myself working on tend to share some commonalities there's always the interest and passion for plays that really take advantage of the live experience and the immediacy of the live actor in front of you where that can take the form of a more sort of immersive theater experience, um, something with more actor-audience engagement and interaction, or a kind of physical virtuosity and a kind of physical rigor that is very exciting to watch and I think is also just another sort of Empathy igniter in an audience to see an actor really sweating something and doing something at the top of their abilities. Thematically, especially now, I'm particularly interested in how we're talking about this moment that we're living in and how we can potentially make the theater a space for a call to action. I think that while theater audiences tend to be on the more sort of politically progressive end of the spectrum, I don't think that that means that we have no responsibility to engage with the very difficult issues that we are facing in a particularly politically divisive moment. I also... I'm curious as to why we make the assumption that no Republicans go to the theater, and I would like to interrogate that assumption, and I would like that also just not to be true about our country, that theater is for liberals, and we just talk to each other about how terrible things are, as opposed to actually making the theater a space for a real engagement with people who do have different viewpoints. And there are some viewpoints in there that I won't call equally valid. You know, I don't think that like a white supremacist viewpoint is equally valid, but I think that that's also, you know, the minority of people. And there are other viewpoints that we can engage with and should engage with. And I love the kind of work that makes us think about goodness in a different way, makes us think about our own personal responsibility as an audience, plays that in some way call out a complicity or give an audience member the feeling of a call to action. Those are exciting to me, as well as those plays where an average American audience member is getting to know a person or a community that they haven't gotten to know before, who comes from a country or a background that is unfamiliar to them or where they learn about an issue that they didn't know was an issue. And those have been a lot of my experiences too. I've worked on plays that have required me to research in some cases, really terrible historical events that I also felt ashamed I had never learned about. I did a play that was about a group of actors generating a devised piece about the genocide of the Herero in Namibia. And I didn't know that there had been a genocide of the Herero. And I assistant-directed a play some years ago that was about a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And I'd heard about it, but I hadn't really learned about it. And so, for me, the things that... The plays that make me a student again tend to be really exciting. If it feels like I know everything about these people and and their lifestyle and their community and I already have a grasp on it, it's less interesting to me than the plays that require research and inquiry and a different kind of empathy and understanding from me.
0: 2017, Piron, along with three other Middle Eastern directors, launched Maya Directors, a consulting firm that supports artists in telling Middle Eastern stories.
1: Karim Fahmi, Evren Otziken, and Megan Sandberg-Zakian and I all met during, there was a convening of Manasa Theater Artists at the Lark Play Development Center in May of 2016, I believe that was. And we just started, Kareem and I had already known each other, but the four of us just started connecting on these like monthly conference calls without necessarily any plan to form an organization or for any specific project or endeavor, but because we realized, you know, we were four Middle Eastern theater directors and we should be talking to each other. And so the conversations early on were largely about the triumphs and challenges we were facing, the different things we were navigating in the field as Middle Eastern artists and as directors, as someone calls emerging directors, a very loaded and complicated term. And we found that as we were talking, we also realized how much we were called upon by various colleagues and and professionals in the field as casting resources and as these kinds of like catch all resources for telling Middle Eastern stories. And this work was always done on a volunteer basis and always something that we did individually in order to advocate for actors and help our friends get opportunities because You know, for Middle Eastern actors, there aren't enough of those jobs, and a lot of the jobs that end up being their bread and butter end up being in TV, and those narratives don't necessarily explore the richness and complexity of those human beings and their lives, if you catch my drift. Lots of roles as terrorists, unfortunately. And so we talked about it more and more, and we realized that we were only going to keep doing this as volunteers as long as we agreed to. And if we decided to codify something and form an organization around this work, that then it would give our advocacy a value. And in doing so the thinking was for all of us that we would be giving a value to our community and to our voices and to the contributions we can make to the field. And that, I think, has been the biggest driving force to say that if you're looking for Middle Eastern artists, actors, consultation of any kind for a project, that that is a legitimate, valid thing (laughs) that you can seek our services And we can offer that. And my hope is that in forming this organization, we both remove the excuse, you know, to not do that due diligence and tell those stories in a specific and nuanced way. But also we make it visible that it is possible. And hopefully then more people will do it. More people will produce those plays and more of those stories will get told over time. So as much as it's a business for us, it's our thinking about it is more long game in terms of how this could hopefully shift the theater landscape so that Middle Eastern stories and artists can find themselves on mainstream American theater stages and not just in the context of the totally wonderful smaller companies that exist for those communities. Piron
0: believes it is vital, especially given today's socio-political climate,
1: to know of and hear stories about people from the Middle East. We in this country are always hearing about that region of the world somehow, except that often the way we're hearing about that region of the world is as it pertains to war and violence and extremism, and that is but a sliver of what there is to know and the fact that extremism and middle easternness has in some parts of this country become practically synonymous is an incredibly dangerous thing and i think has given rise to a lot of xenophobia and a lot of racism and when i think about iranian culture i think about poetry and music And all of these incredible artistic traditions. And there's so much to appreciate and to learn and to celebrate that isn't in any way seen in the way the majority of media portrays what a Middle Eastern person is and what a Middle Eastern country is about. And I think it's really essential that the theater be a space for that kind of engagement And I think it's important for any human who wants to continue to grow and learn over the course of their life, who's interested in a life of curiosity and a life of learning and of stepping outside of one's own very familiar experiences in order to better know the experiences of others that are foreign to them. If that's important to you, then I think the theater needs to be a place where that person can buy a ticket And be part of that learning and that exploration and that inquiry. And I I think it's a very political act right now to make a play about Middle Eastern people where, like, there are no bombs going off in the distance and, like, no one's in a war zone and people are people navigating human you know, almost like commonplace and banal life experiences and conflicts. I would love to see a Middle Eastern romantic comedy, you know. I want to see more of that work that is truly complex and humanizing and also serves to remind us that That we are all human beings and that we all love and lose and fight and fail and strive and that that is what unites us and that what the people who wish to divide us want us to do is to forget that and that we can't.
0: Piron's journey shows us that theater has a very important and powerful role to play in educating us, in dispelling myths, in challenging stereotypes, and in making people question their own biases. In this way, theater is not just a form of entertainment and a way to pass time. It is amongst our most powerful political art forms. You've been listening to West of Middle East. You can hear more episodes about changemakers from the Middle East diaspora at westofmiddleeast.org or check us out on iTunes. If you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes. This podcast is created by the Neda Nobari Foundation, an organization supporting social and environmental justice through the arts and education. Our engineer is Rick McRae of Conscious Studios. Music is composed by Loga Ramin Torquion and Azam Ali. And I'm your host, Niaz Kasravi. If you want to share your thoughts about this podcast or have ideas for future seasons, email us at comments at west of thanks for tuning in until next time